Great. Well, we're returning to John's Gospel. We were here um, back at the end of last year. And we're going to go back to John, pick it up where we left off. Um, And in the first 10 chapters of John's Gospel, John gave us six signs. Six extraordinary miracles, acts of power that Jesus did to reveal his glory. And when we get to John chapter 11, we get to the seventh sign that John gives us. And in many ways, it's the most dramatic and most spectacular yet. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a bit of time over this miracle. And it really forms a bridge between the first half of John's gospel and the second half. So we're going to take some time. We're going to spend the next eight weeks looking at John chapters 11 and 12. Eight weeks working our way carefully through what John has to show us. So I'm going to read um, the first chunk of John 11. If you've got a Bible or a phone or something with uh, the Bible on it, then why not get John 11 in front of you so you can see what we're reading. So John 11, starting at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I want to pick out four features um, of this opening account um, of the raising of Lazarus. Spoiler alert, Lazarus gets raised from the dead. You'll see that in about four weeks' time. (laughs) But I want to pick out four features that I think John kind of emphasizes for us so that we can understand what's going on. Why this miracle? Why like this? And the first thing I want you to see is the closeness, right? The closeness that exists between Jesus and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
I think John really puts an emphasis on that relationship. There's a deep connection between them. They're not just passing acquaintances. It's not like Jesus, you know, doesn't really know them or just knows them by name. He really knows them. In fact, he is emotionally engaged with this particular family. So you get this funny little note in verse 2. Did you see it? When, when we're told in brackets, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Which we're not going to read about until the next chapter, which is when that happens. But John is sort of saying, no, it's this Mary. It's this Mary who has this close emotional connection with Jesus. It's this Mary. Not some random person. So Lazarus is not just any old person who has got ill. No, no, it's this Lazarus. So if you look at verse 3, he's described as, Lord, the one you love is sick. If you look down to verse 5, you read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. If you flip over and go to verse 33, you'll see that um, when Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then in verse uh, 35, Jesus wept. And the crowd say, see how he loved him. And then in verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved. I don't think there's a miracle in the Bible that is so dripping with emotion, with Jesus' closeness to those that he is encountering. Many of Jesus' other miracles are performed on strangers, people who he just happens to encounter. But no, this is someone close. And that's been one of the themes of the first half of John's gospel. That Jesus is awesome and transcendent and great and yet comes so close to be imminent, to be present with us. He is not an arm's length God, but one who comes near. So let's just keep hammering this point home. I want us to feel this this afternoon. I want you to see how close Jesus comes. John has already made some staggeringly big claims about Jesus in his gospel. It will be hard to make bigger claims than John has already made. Let me remind you of a few of them. This Jesus that we're talking about is the one who in the beginning was with God and is God. That's quite a big statement to start with. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Here is the one through whom all things were created. That is how great Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the great I Am. He is loved by the Father. He is sent by the Father. He is entrusted by the Father. He is the one that Moses wrote about. He's the one that all the scriptures testify about. He's the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. He's the Lamb of God who takes away sin, and he is the Savior of the world. Do you feel the weight of the greatness of this Jesus? 
He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. He's the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the gate who opens the door to heaven itself. And he's the one who can satisfy the thirsty with living water. He made water into wine. He made a sick man well. He made a paralyzed man walk. He made hungry people full. He made the sea into his pavement. And he opened the eyes of the blind man to the beautiful light of day. This is Jesus. When I say that Jesus is great, I mean like properly great. In fact, I would go so far as to say the greatest. By all definitions of greatness, he is the greatest. And that is what John means when he says, we've seen his glory. Here is Jesus. That's who he is. Let's not forget who he is. Let's not forget his identity. And yet, it's a greatness that comes close. It's greatness that interacts with the everyday. I think this is what makes Jesus so spellbindingly beautiful. Because in our normal way of thinking, the greater the glory, the greater the separation. You see, someone who is great stays away, keeps distance. But not Jesus. Not this gospel. Because the heart of the message is that the very greatest one of all comes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and is their friend. Does that not strike you as amazing? They're friends with the eternal Son of God who made the world, they're his friends. And it's not just Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That is how Jesus treats all of his people. Just one chapter earlier, he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. In fact, John chapter 10 says that he calls his own sheep by name. The eternal Son of God who created the universe knows you by name. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Tom, Emily, Tia. Do you hear it? He knows your name. I'm not going to do everybody. We'll be here all night. He knows your name. That's how close he comes. And it may be that you sit here today and you feel distant from God. It may be that you feel like an outsider looking in. It may be you feel unnoticed and unseen. Well, as we watch Jesus interact with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this is how he treats his people. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 3, it's written by the same John who wrote John's gospel. There's this beautiful picture where Jesus says to you, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with them. Right now, he's standing at your door, he's knocking on your heart, and he's saying, I know you by name. I want to know that closeness of relationship with you. Will you pursue that? So this is a miracle that is performed against a 
deeply emotional and connected relationship. But let's move on. See, this closeness comes into stark focus when we see the second thing, which is the need. See, verse 1 says that Lazarus was ill. And Jesus receives this word. I want you to picture the sisters back home in Bethany. You've got Mary and Martha. Their, their brother Lazarus is sick. You can imagine, can you imagine the conversation? You know, should we call Jesus? Perhaps we should call Jesus. He could probably do something. Why don't we call Jesus? Well, let's wait a bit. Let's just see if he gets better. Let's not trouble Jesus. He seems to be getting worse. I think we should call Jesus. Okay, let's send Jesus a message. Let's tell him the problem. And so they send this message to Jesus. But I want you to notice this. There is a beautiful simplicity in what they say. Here's the message they send to Jesus. It's there in verse 3. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. That's what they say. Notice they don't make any demands of Jesus. They don't suggest that he should do something. They don't demand that he immediately drop everything and come. They simply lay their request before him and say, Lord, here's our need. He's ill. I think this is a great model, actually, of how to pray. If you, if you kind of sometimes get yourself a bit stressed about, I don't know how to pray, I don't know the right words, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, I don't know what it's supposed to look like. Okay, here's a simple prayer. I think this is a prayer. The sisters are praying to Jesus by sending him this word. So when we pray, when we find ourselves in need, you come with humility. Notice they call him Lord. They don't come to Jesus and go, Wait, Jesus, mate, do you want to come and help? They come with a humility that says, No, you are Lord. They recognize his greatness. They recognize his power. They've seen something of his glory. And so they come with humility. They don't treat him as an equal. And they come with simplicity. They just tell him their need. Our brother's sick, Jesus. It's not sensationalized, it's not over the top, it's not overly dramatic. They just tell him their needs, laying the need before him. You don't have to know the answer to your prayer before you pray, right? Sometimes we act as though we come to God and say, Dear God, I've got this problem, but it's okay because I know what I need you to do. So if you could just do this, 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 and this, that would be terrific, and then my problem would be sorted. No, that's almost overstepping. It's going too far in prayer. You don't need to go that far in prayer. Just stop at the need. Jesus, I've got a pro- I'm in need. Here's my need. They pray with humility, simplicity, but expectancy. See, they're clearly expecting Jesus to do something. Because they wouldn't send word to someone and expect, you know, unless they're expecting Jesus to do something. They know that Jesus will be bothered. They know that Jesus can help them. They know that Jesus has power. They know that Jesus loves Lazarus. And so they say, let's pray. Let's send word to Jesus. 
So where do you feel yourself to be in need this afternoon? What is the need that presses in on you? What is the need that is consuming you? I wonder, would you let the beautiful model of these two sisters encourage you? Send word to Jesus. Send word to Jesus. Tell him. Lay it before him with humility, simplicity, and expectancy. So they've sent the, the word and, and they've, they've told their need. And here comes the third thing. Next we're going to see the glory. And now we're really pushing into, I think, where, where, the, the, where John says this is the point of what's going on here. Because here is where our passage takes a very strange turn. And when you see Jesus acting in ways that you wouldn't expect him to act, that should wake you up and go, hang on, why is Jesus doing that? That's a strange thing to do. And it is very strange. So often he doesn't fit into our categories. He doesn't dance to our tune. He doesn't kind of follow our agenda. Instead, he acts very differently. You see, okay, here are Mary and Martha, right? Here they are back in Bethany. What are they expecting Jesus to do? Come on, you've got to picture them. What are they expecting Jesus to do? They've sent their word to Jesus. They've told him the problem. Surely they're expecting that as soon as possible he will arrive. That he will drop everything to come running. That must be what they're expecting. Driven by deep love, they're expecting Jesus to come charging into the situation and to make everything right again. And we expect that too, right? When we present our needs before Jesus, our expectation is that he is going to immediately do what we want him to do, to to reverse the problem, the, the need that we have. So, So picture them here. In Bethany, waiting. They've sent word. They've done their calculation. He should have had word by now. Surely he'll be here. He'll be here. He'll be here. Lazarus is getting sicker and sicker. Where is he? Where is he? And actually, the word that they've sent to Jesus and the fact that they know that Jesus knows now is making their suffering worse. Because now on top of their fear for their brother, they now have this anxious and and these doubts that are now swirling into their heads. Why hasn't Jesus come? Does he not love us? Has he abandoned us? And as Lazarus breathes his last and dies, you can imagine them. They've got their grief that Lazarus has died, but they have this desperate question that says, but where's Jesus? Why didn't he come? Why wasn't he here? Surely if you love me, Jesus, you will take away my pain. That's the way we think, right? And we assume that the biggest agenda on the mind of Jesus should be the removal of our personal pain and struggle. But here's what John wants you to see this afternoon. Rather than dance to our tune, we discover that Jesus has a bigger and better and more beautiful tune that he wants you to hear. 
It's the repeated tune that we've heard echoing through the pages of John's gospel. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. That is the theme tune through John's gospel. And so Jesus says this remarkable thing in verse 4. When Jesus heard the news about Lazarus, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. Now notice very carefully, he doesn't say that Lazarus won't die. He says that it won't end in death. Death won't be the end of it. But that's just so weird. Because death is the end. That is how we think. And so this week, the Duke of Edinburgh died. He lived from 1921 to 2021. And now it's finished. And now we look back on his life and we remember his remarkable story, but now it's finished. Death is the final page in the story. There are no more chapters after that. I used to watch cartoons when I was a kid. You know the Bugs Bunny cartoons? And at the end, there's that little character will pop and go, that's all, folks. It's the end. And it was just so sad because it meant the cartoons were over. And because I didn't have internet and you, know, you couldn't just go to another one, that was it for the day. You had to wait till tomorrow. It was horrendous. But death was the end. That's all, folks. It's, that's it, the final page. But Jesus speaks very differently. He says, no, death is not the end. There's another end. He speaks of a different end. In fact, Jesus speaks in such a way that he talks of death as the backdrop upon which he will paint the greater ending. And the greater ending is the glory of God. So he says, verse 4, this illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, we mustn't hear that in a crass way. We mustn't hear that in a sort of um, Jesus going, oh no, this is your opportunity for me to show off my skills. (laughs) This is Jesus saying, that death is the backdrop upon which the greater end is painted, that Jesus is so great and powerful that he is able to turn death from the greatest enemy that brings our dreams and ambitions crashing down. Jesus is able to take that enemy, turn it round, make it not the end, and instead demonstrate his glory. You see, glory, when we talk about glory, glory is God on display. Glory is what happens when God shows himself. So if you imagine a weightlifter, right? The glory of a weightlifter is seen when? When the weights on the bar are at their heaviest, right? The heavier the weight, the greater the glory of the weightlifter. The glory of a head teacher shines most brightly when they turn around a failing school, right? The glory of a doctor is seen when they save a patient from the very brink of death, not when they give out some cold medicine. 
You see, the darker the backdrop, the greater the glory that shines. And so the glory of God shines most brightly when all hope seems lost. Slavery in Egypt is the great backdrop upon which God reveals his glory. A fiery furnace, a lion's den, a vast and mighty army, whatever it might be, the darker the backdrop, the brighter the glory shines. And so here Jesus is saying that when the backdrop is death itself, the glory will shine more brightly than ever. And to see that glory is the most necessary and life-transforming experience that any human being can have. Here is the soaring theme tune of John's gospel. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. This is the great theme. This is the tune that Jesus wants you to hear. This is his great desire for you. His greater desire even than your comfort and your pleasure and your happiness. His greater desire is that you would see his glory. And how do I know that that's his ambition for you? Well, because in just a few chapters' time in John's Gospel, when you got to get to John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for all who would believe in him. And this is his prayer. Father, I want those that you've given me to be with me and to see my glory. You see, what we want from Jesus is too small. We're not ambitious enough. We don't ask for enough. Actually, seeing his glory, that is the greatest. Can I just um, apply this really practically for a minute? Um, well, let's, actually, I'll do that in a second. Let's just look at verses 5 and 6, because you've got to see the logic now. Okay? This is why the logic of verse 5 and 6 matters so much, because when you first read this, if you weren't surprised by this, you weren't awake enough. Right? There, is a, there is a word in verses 5 and 6 which really should have got you like pretty annoyed or puzzled or something. Let me read verse 5 again. Now Lazarus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And, and Lazarus. Well, that's nice. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Verse 6, so he loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything and ran to the bedside. No. He loved them. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Come on, that's, that's weird. That's not what we think love looks like. And I guess that it did not feel like love to Mary and Martha. And yet it was a delay that was motivated and driven by love. Jesus waited two more days because he loved them. And because his love therefore intended that they would see his glory. But 
But for Mary and Martha, it must have been deeply, deeply painful. Why isn't he here? And I guess for many of us, we have experienced times in our lives when we find ourselves thinking, Jesus, why haven't you done something? Why does life have to hurt so much? Do you not love me? And Jesus says, no, my precious child, I love you. And I want you to see my glory. And this isn't easy teaching. I guess there's a big part of us that, that thinks, well, why can't I just see his glory without the pain? Well, it's because the glory shines brightest against the darkest backdrop. Let me give you um, a, a, a personal but slightly... It's a slightly trivial example in some ways, but you'll see what I mean. I was preparing this talk this week, and at the same time I was stressing about what we're going to do about a venue. And I found myself praying, God, this is... To be honest, I'm... I'm a, I'm actually quite fed up now because we've been praying about this for a long time. You're the God who is all-powerful. You could give us a building. I mean, like, you could give us a building. That's not a difficult thing for you to do. And I'm spending a lot of time on trying to find a building. And I had a bit of a low point this week. (laughs) I just got very, like, this is ridiculous. And then I read this, and I was like, but perhaps God's greatest desire for us as a church is not that we have an easy life. And not that everything is straightforward and God just chucks everything in our lap and we never have to trust him or pray. What if God's glory shines brightest when things are hardest? I was really challenged by that because I don't want life to be hard. I like easy But if God says the way that we see his glory is in our suffering and even in death, we need to trust him with that. So there's the, um, the glory. That's God's greatest desire for you is to see his glory. And then the final thing I just want us to see is the, the goal. Um, Because what Jesus does here is he is so in control of everything. He, he knows what he's doing. He's not panicking. He, he's completely in control of what's going on. And so at the end of verse 7, after two days, he says, okay, let us go back to Judea. At which point his disciples aren't very excited. But Rabbi, they say, they tried to kill you that last time you went there. Why are we going back there? Okay, that's fairly logical. For most people, you avoid the places where you have uh, the potential of death, right? You just don't go there. You avoid that. Preservation seems like a good option. Then Jesus gives this, honestly, being one of Jesus' disciples must have been so puzzling. You just walk around most of the time going, what does he mean? I don't know. (laughs) So verse 9, they say, "Are are we really going back there? Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night, they stumble, for they have no light. 
can imagine the disciples going, so are we, are we going back or not? I don't understand what Jesus is saying. I actually think what Jesus is saying is there are 12 hours of daylight. There is nothing that anyone can do about that. It is a fixed thing. There are 12 hours of light and then night comes. And it doesn't matter how much an enemy rages at the sun and tries to make night come and throws things at the sun and says, go down early, you stupid sun, go down early. They can't do anything about it. They're 12 hours of daylight. And Jesus says, there's no one who can stop the daylight. There's no one who can stop me, the light of the world. There's no one who can snuff out the light before it's time. I know what I'm doing. Jesus has come as the light of the world. And while he is in the world, the people see by his light and the people can walk in his light. Just like the light of the sun gives people light so they don't stumble around. So here is Jesus come to be the 12 hours of light. And no one will snuff out that light early. Yes, we're going back to Judea because there's not anyone who can lay a finger on Jesus until night comes. And night will come. Jesus will face death. But he will face death at the right time. He will face death when the time comes for him to die. And at his death, the backdrop becomes as harsh and as bleak as could possibly be imagined. When the eternal Son of God lies in a grave. (laughs) But it's there against the darkest of all backgrounds that the glory of God is about to shine most brightly. Because it's there that Jesus will defeat death itself. He will defeat the night itself. He will rise to be the light of the world. He will rise to bring in the day so that we can walk in his light. And so that even when we experience the darkest of days, we can know Jesus as our light. So I think that's what Jesus is saying. Um, He tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. His disciples don't get it. They think he's just, well, that's okay if he's he's asleep. That's all right, isn't it? He'll get better again. (laughs) And then Jesus has to be pretty blunt. Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. That's his great goal. He wants us to believe in him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to see his glory and to pin all of our hope on him. He wants us to say, yes, Jesus, you are the light of the world, the son of God, the bread of life. All the things that you've said you are, you are. And you're the one who can rescue me from the place of death. So for the friends of Jesus, the story doesn't end in death. Death is what we deserve for our sin, but it's not what we receive when we trust in him. Death may well be part of our story, but it won't be the end of our story. The page will turn over, a new chapter will begin, and we'll see his glory. So I just want to say to you, in the middle of your 
pain, in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your praying and your questioning, Jesus, why don't you do something? Whether it's a physical thing like a building or whether it's a more serious thing, a, a relationship or a, someone that you love, in the midst of that, hold on. Hold on for the glory. It's not the end yet. It's not the end. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we pray for your help. Um, We thank you so much that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes so close to us that his greatness comes and he knows us by name. Thank you that we get to lay our need before him, to, to pour out our need to him. We thank you that his greatest ambition for us is not just that we would have an easy life, but that we would see your glory. And thank you, Jesus, that you're the one who will make sure that happens as we believe in you. Lord Jesus, we trust you, we believe you, and we ask that you'd help us to cling on to you. In your precious name, amen.